Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller. I'm your host and interviewer each week. Six years coming up to 400 episodes taped where twice weekly we release new conversations on Tuesdays and Fridays in audio and in video where we take Franklin Covey's megawatt leadership spotlight as the world's most trusted leadership company in China onto people that we think have something worthy of sharing. Oftentimes, it's people that are in the C-suite, they're entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, maybe they're leaders in mid-level organizations that have perhaps survived some difficulty, trauma, research expertise, and have lived to share about it through their own vulnerability. Oftentimes, it's people that come from a very broad entrepreneurial background, like today's guest, to share lessons that she has learned from breaking out of the own societal expectations that were placed on her from her family and society. Today, I think you will learn a lot for those of you who have daughters or nieces or granddaughters, for those of you who have leaders with women in your organizations, people that, regardless of your gender, want to break free from traditional shackles, if you will, of what you think the world expects from you and how you can build your own power. Her name is Lisa Carmen Wang, and she's here today on the heels of her new release, The Bad Bitch Business Bible. What a great title, what a great cover, what a great topic. Lisa Carmen Wang, welcome to On Leadership. I am honored to be here, Scott. Lisa, your accolades are too far to list. Top 30 of this, top 20 of that, executive board of this. You have launched and sold companies. You are a well-renowned keynote speaker, coach, entrepreneur. Would you take a couple of minutes and just talk about your journey? I'd love to know about your personal background, your professional background. Take your time so that all of our listeners and viewers today can really appreciate the wisdom and fire you are going to bring to this conversation. Well, my first career, I say, is always my gymnastics career. So I was a gymnast on the U.S. national team. I started training when I was nine years old, and I fell in love with the sport because of my ability to move my body through space and use my body to create emotion and transformation in the audience. The other thing about it is that I grew up extremely shy, extremely insecure. I could never use my voice. So gymnastics gave me the stage where I could really reach people without using my voice um, and through my performance, through my expression, through my emotion. Um, but the dark side of gymnastics and growing up in that space was that I learned and was deeply rooted in perfectionism. So gymnastics is a sport that's literally all about the perfect 10. And so that meant learning how to be the perfect gymnast, the have the perfect smile, the perfect body, the perfect uh, leotard and the perfect routine. And so it really instilled in me this fear of failure. And if you also add on the fact that I was the eldest daughter of immigrants, so my parents came to the U.S. with barely a couple hundred dollars. And so any child of immigrants understands the huge sacrifice that your parents made for you. And so I've always had this pressure to achieve and be perfect that came both externally as well as internally. And so... Um, 
as a gymnast, I became four-time national champion. I ended up on the U.S. national team, world championships for three years, and I was on track to be an Olympian at the 2008 Olympic Games. And what ended up happening was probably one of the biggest disappointments of my life. When I was 19, I had dedicated 10 years of my life to this sport. And on the qualification for the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games, I ended up missing the Olympics by a mere 0.25 tenths of a point. So that is barely a toe. Um, and it really shattered my identity completely around what it really meant to be successful, what it really meant to be enough, because I came face to face with my deepest fear, which was fear of failure, fear of disappointing people, my coaches, my parents, the country, um, and really having to figure out what my identity was. So up until that point, I had anchored my identity as that of a gymnast. And when I didn't make my Olympic dream, what ended up happening was I had to find a new identity. And so when I dug in, I realized that my, my true identity wasn't just of a gymnast, it was that of a fighter and a winner. And I ended up doing the hardest thing that I knew possible because around that same time, I got my acceptance to Yale University, my dream school, and I ended up telling Yale no. I wasn't going to go that year. I deferred a year so that I could buy a one-way ticket to the Russian Olympic Training Center to train at the most rigorous training center in the world, in Novogorsk, Russia. And I committed to spending the next year of my life training, competing, and becoming the best possible gymnast. And for the first time in my life, I was doing it fully for me and not for anybody else. And so nine months later, I ended up at my final competition, the USA Gymnastics national championships and ended up sweeping every single gold medal, winning athlete of the year. And then I was like, peace, I'm out. Um, so I tell that story because it just sets the foundation of my personality as an entrepreneur, as an investor. Um, so now I'm a multi-time entrepreneur. I've had an exit um, to a billion dollar fintech company. I've really focused my career on advancing female leaders in their career in business, um, helping pay equality, gender equality, helping female founders raise capital to close the funding gap. Um, so I'm very passionate about what I do. And the thing that I bring with me from the athlete perspective uh, from my time as a gymnast was the ability to set a long-term, a decade-long dream and to pursue that regardless of the ups and downs and to make sure that that North Star is the thing that always drives me and always aligns me to my truth and my purpose. And so today I'm the founder of the Bad Bitch Empire, building unapologetic worth and wealth for women. I'm a business coach that helps women build powerful personal brands, unleash their inner bad bitch um, and scale their million, multi-million or billion dollar empires. Beautifully said. I can't help but ask, how did you move from shy daughter of immigrant parents to... The cover of your book has you in leather boots and leather gloves, and the title is Bad Bitch Business Bible. Something happened. Maybe a series of things happened. You swung the pendulum pretty far to a responsible place because you have dedicated your career, your professional career now, in the business world to empowering women, finding their voices, breaking free from expectations placed on them by families and societies, building education and wealth and entrepreneurial skills and funding. This is a far cry from perhaps what your persona was for years as a gymnast. Was there, was there a person, an insult, a coach, a mentor, a moment, a series of moments, 
Speak to those waiting yeah. for their moment to break free that might spy, mm -hmm. find inspiration in yours. So the book, The Bad Bitch Business Bible, is really anchored on my own experience with what I call good girl brainwashing. And good girl brainwashing are all the societal and media expectations that train women to stay silent, play small, and uh, be obedient to the status quo. And it causes good girl habits, things like perfectionism, people pleasing, staying silent, having weak boundaries, being afraid to assert yourself and own your worth. And that was the kind of good girl that I was growing up for the majority of my life. I never felt like I was good enough. I was always afraid to speak even in a room full of three people, much less in a classroom. Um, I always questioned my own opinions. I always felt like I wasn't good enough, wasn't perfect enough. Like it was, it's a really hard way to live. And I know that many women, many people still suffer from that. Um, just this constant self-doubt and self-sabotage. And, you know, I always say that there wasn't, all, there wasn't a moment per se, but it's, especially for women, there are a constant stream of small paper cuts, just living as a woman in this world. And the small paper cuts are things like being overlooked, undervalued, assumed as inferior, um, when you just walk into the room as yourself. So one of the earliest experiences I had entering Silicon Valley was with my, um, at that point, that my COO, and he was a 35 year old uh, white male, and I walked into an investor networking event and the investor who was also a male, walked straight over to him, shook his hand and brushed me off as the assistant. And I was the CEO. Now that, at that point, I actually felt embarrassed and I said, sorry. I was like, oh, sorry, um, I, I'm the CEO. And, you know, he certainly didn't apologize, but the, that's just an example of a small paper cut. And what I realized after experiencing enough small paper cuts was that uh, there's something I talk about in my book called radical self-responsibility. And radical self-responsibility is the moment that you take back your power and you stop saying that you're a victim of your external circumstances and you take radical responsibility for your role in the life that you are living today. And so I asked myself, what, what is the energy that I'm showing up with that is causing people to question mm. my authority or question my, you know, my, my enoughness? And is it because I question my own enoughness and worthiness? And I, I really just took it upon myself to dig deep and ask myself, like, what, what are those good girl voices in my head that are sabotaging me such that I believe that I am unworthy, that I believe that I'm not beautiful, that I believe that I don't have anything valuable to say, and that I believe that I don't have the skills to build a massive, successful company. And it's a very hard process because we are so ingrained with these voices and they're the voices of, again, parents, society, family, community, religion, whatever, that tell you as a woman that you're not allowed to own your wins. You're not allowed to be unapologetic and speak your mind because if you do, if you are aggressive and assertive, then you are a quote unquote bitch. And so um, I, I think there was, there was a personal moment that I did have and it was just, it wasn't 
stand out in any particular way. It was just the straw that broke the camel's back where I, I was like, I just, I can't deal with this anymore because I am trying to be a good girl. I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to be pleasing. I'm trying to be perfect. And that is not gaining me the respect that I want. And also I feel awful. I feel small. So if that's not working and no matter what I do, I'm going to be called something or disrespected in some way, then I may as well just take back my power and own my truth. And so there's a very intentional reason why I chose chose the word bitch and the term bad bitch for this book and everything that I'm building for my brand. And it's because typically we use the word bitch to describe a woman who is cold, too aggressive, uh, maybe too opinionated, too dramatic. Uh, she is, you know, she, she's, she's, yeah, she's just like the type of woman that you feel like is abrasive. And I realized that this is really just the sort of woman who um, speaks her mind, has opinions, has boundaries, doesn't tolerate disrespect and walks away from anyone who doesn't see her value. And that means that the word bitch has actually been used to weaponize a woman's power against her to make her feel inadequate. And the reclamation of the word bitch is a reclamation of our power because I am claiming all of those skills for myself. So long, long way of answering that what it really was, was just me getting sick and tired of feeling like I wasn't good enough. And then projecting that version of myself that I knew the woman that I could be, but I wasn't yet. And then slowly moving towards that till I could finally unleash the woman that you see on the cover and in front of you. Lisa, thank you for sharing that. It's a riveting story. Reminds me a lot of a previous guest we interviewed, uh, Kara Golden. She is the founder of Hint Water, this, you know, large global flavored still water company. And she was trying to find ways to flavor still water. They were all sparkling waters. And along her journey, she went down and spoke to an executive at one of the large soda companies in Atlanta, Georgia. And loosely translated, she went down on a fact-finding mission, and he basically said to her, quote, hey, listen, darling. And he went in and said, this isn't going to happen. You're barking up the wrong tree. And it really kind of motivated her to build what is now this juggernaut, multi-hundred million dollar company that I spend about $100 a week on buying Hint Water for my wife and our three sons. But I I'm guessing it was a similar pivot point for her. Thank you for sharing that. I could picture the boardroom of this guy treating you as the assistant and you saying, oh, I'm sorry, and him not saying, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, visceral story. I, I wanna talk about societal expectations. And I don't think those are exclusive to women or people of color or certain generations. Maybe they're more pronounced in those scenarios. Certainly they are. I'm not sure I had a lot of societal expectations on me as a middle-class white guy from the 80s in Florida, but I'm guessing there were. Would you talk about and teach some lessons for everybody who maybe is unconsciously uh, enslaved or subjected to their societal expectations? What can they do to break free and to live life and define success on their own terms? So I think one thing that happens very often, especially for children of immigrants in America, is that you have an inordinate burden of pressure to succeed and make sure that your family's sacrifice was worth it. And so this happens for um, so many minority women, um, daughters who have grown up feeling like they have to be perfect, feeling like they have to perform. But also in a lot of these cultures, we are told that we have to be silent 
to put our head down and work harder and just let our work speak for itself. Plus this more female expectation that you must be pleasing and not too abrasive and very nice. And so one big difference that you see between men and women in the way that society treats them is what's the one emotion that men are allowed to express? That emotion is anger, right? You see angry men and you see angry CEOs and it's for some reason it's okay for a man to express anger. And that is the one emotion ironically, that a woman is not allowed to express. Because if she does, she's a crazy bitch. She's overdramatic. She's off her rocker. And this dichotomy is very, very unhealthy for both sides. Um, because of course, men can't express any other emotions. And we have a whole other conversation about toxic masculinity there. But for women, anger is actually some, when we suppress our anger, we suppress a very powerful and divine part of ourselves because anger is created as an emotion for us as the first indication of a injustice that we see in the world of something that we want to solve and so even for me i had i remember the straw that broke the camel's back my experience and up until that point i was in my mid-20s i had never experienced the emotion of anger I had certainly experienced sadness and frustration and fear and a lot of other things, but I had never allowed myself to experience anger. And in that moment, I not only experienced anger, I experienced rage. And it was a rage that I felt in terms of the, the full injustice of what women have been through in history, from being um, murdered, abused, burned, and it's a it's a true connection that I think a lot of us sometimes we need to take a moment to appreciate how far we have progressed in history, because, by the way, just 50 years ago, women could not even open up their own bank account or get their own credit card without the signature of a father or a husband. And that means our mother's generation literally could not even conceive of true financial liberation to live life on their own terms. So we are living in a very, very unprecedented age as women trying to chart our own way and figure out how to how to be in society. And so I think that the, the thing that that anger and that rage really transformed into for me was passion and purpose. And so I think that that when you don't allow yourself to experience the full range of emotions as a human, then you never really can tap into that fire within you as a leader of a movement, as a leader of a community, as a leader of an empire, um, because you never really are able to feel the and have empathy for the people that you're leading. And so I think that regardless of what what you're leading or you know who's who's listening and what your purpose is, I think that we all need to figure out how to tap into something deeper. And that really starts with ourselves and our own emotional intelligence. Lisa, any advice, you're not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but you've been through lots of training and you are a very successful coach and entrepreneur. Any advice you would give to people, regardless of gender or race or experience, perhaps specifically those that immigrant you know, parents or women as well, about how do they discover or uncover what societal expectations they have either had placed on them or they have taken on? Perhaps people haven't, I mean, honest to gosh, I had never thought about that particular phrase 
in my own life, having read your book and studied about you in preparation for today's interview, I'm probably an outlier in terms of the amount of expectation placed on me, certainly some by my parents and others, but any exercise or discussion activity you might advise someone to contemplate, to name it and describe it, own it, and choose how to break free of it? Yeah, so I have a exercise in my book and it's actually in the body section. And this is a very powerful exercise that I've done with my clients. And I, I pose the question around self-love and love for your body. And I say, well, what does loving your body have anything to do with business? And my answer is it has everything to do with business and life and how you live. Because if you walk into the bathroom mirror and you look at yourself in the mirror and you do not like the person that you see, if the first thing that you say is, oh, look at that pimple, look at that wrinkle, I'm a little bit overweight, I don't like my body. Um, and again, women have an inordinate burden of how society tells them they must forever look young, forever look a certain way, have a certain weight, very exacting standards of what your body looks like. Most women are trained to feel very negatively about their bodies and only fixate on the things that they need to fix. And by the way, for those of you with daughters, this is a very, very dangerous time, especially when all of the girls are looking at social media and the amount of plastic surgery that women are doing to their faces and their bodies and with auto um, face tune and fixing and AI, um, girls have a very warped view of their bodies. And when they look in the mirror in real life, uh, they hate what they see. And so one of the exercises that I have in my book is around um, standing in front of the mirror and you take off all your clothes. You know, this is just you and yourself in the mirror and you look yourself in the eye and you do a full body scan and listen to and then write down every single negative thing that you say about yourself and your body. Now, the women clients that I've taken through this uh, exercise have literally broken down crying. They cannot get through this exercise because then as they proceed to actually notice the things that they say to themselves, they realize how much they hate mm. themselves. And it's no wonder that she can't negotiate her raise. It's no wonder she can't speak up in the boardroom. It's no wonder that she can't show up and advocate for herself because in the privacy of her own room, standing in front of herself, she actually hates herself because of the way that media has treated her and society has treated her. And so what I say is that you need to write down all these negative things and you need to become aware of this sh these shadows and these dark voices in your head because those are not your voices. Your most authentic, powerful, bad bitch self would never critique you in that way, would never hate on you, would never say such mean things to you because your truest self is loving, is powerful, um, is, is generous and abundant. And so all of those negative voices of self-doubt, self-hatred, um, disrespect, are not the ones that you want to keep. And those are the ones of society. And the ones you keep are the ones that are empowering, uplifting, and loving. Lisa, that was very powerfully said. I couldn't help but think about my wife and our sons when you were saying that. Myself, I was kind of visualizing all of us going through that exercise. Uh, I appreciate your courage and also how beautifully uh, you said that. Uh, I want to pivot to the concept around cultivating what you call anti-fragile leaders with 
athletic instincts. Generally, this is a leadership podcast. We talk about all kinds of topics and marketing and 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 uh, brand building and trauma. But this is a great phrase: cultivating anti-fragile leaders with athletic instincts. Something you have expertise on both sides of that topic. What does that mean? And how do organizations achieve that? Well, going back to that story about missing the Olympic Games and how that has really brought me into my leadership as an entrepreneur and in and, a, and building businesses and a coach is that I say that the number one skill that I learned as an athlete was the ability to fall and get back up again. Because there's nothing truly like falling flat on your face in front of thousands of people and feeling that shame, that pain, both physically and emotionally, and the guilt of letting people down and finding the strength within you to put a smile back on your face, get back up and say, the show must go on better than even how I started. And that sort of instinct, the ability to fall so many times and then get back up over and over and over again is truly what makes a champion. And that's what I mean by an athletic instinct, because we we hear all the time, it's about the shots that they, it's about the shots you miss, not the shots you take. And it's like the, it's like all those times in the quiet of the training process that nobody sees where there's no glory and it's all pain sweat and tears that's actually when a champion is born and i think that's the same in entrepreneurship in leadership it's that you're probably going to fail a lot of times and have to see every sort of like instinctively immediately see that failure as a lesson as a opportunity to grow and that's also what it means to be anti-fragile it's the ability to um, not just go back to the status quo after something's been broken it's to actually become unbreakable, to become anti-fragile, to become better than what you were before. And I'll never forget what one of my mentors said to me when I, many years after I missed the Olympics, and I shared the story with him about my athletic career. And he said to me, Lisa, you know, you had one of the greatest blessings in life that not a lot of people get to experience. And I said, what's that? He said, you were forced to face life-shattering failure at such a young age and you were forced to figure out how to pick yourself back up and go on and and discover your identity and when he framed it that way i really started seeing things in a different light and so you know we all know life throws at us very difficult challenges personally professionally and it is a choice for you to see it as something that has happened to you or as something that has happened for you. And so when it becomes an automatic instinct for you to see things as happening for you so that you can discover and go even deeper in your own power, in your own strength, in your own purpose, then that is when you know that you've really transcended to this next level and you feel just deep gratitude and appreciation for everything that comes to you. Lisa, as the host of this podcast, now six years running, almost 400 episodes tape, I'm gonna rank you as one of the two or three top most effective communicators we've had on this. I'm riveted listening to you, your word choice, how you put your stories into action, other than your 
education at Yale. Have you done anything to build your ability to express your thoughts and build your verbal communication? Anything you've studied or done or practiced or overcome or a skill you had that you perfected? I believe one of the, if not the most important professional skill beyond your character is your ability to communicate your ideas effectively to others, to build influence. Any tips that you maybe haven't thought about, but you might now share with those who are listening and now are recognizing, you're right, she was a really powerful communicator. <laughs> so I think it's funny. I I started my first podcast, the Enoughness Podcast, when I was, I think, 25. And I have, so that was, that podcast was, on exploring why I didn't feel like I was good enough. And I interviewed all these successful people in different fields. And basically the question was, do you feel like you're good enough? Do you feel like you're good enough? And it turns out nobody feels like they're good enough. Doesn't matter, gender, race, background, age. And I was like, okay, great, I got it. And then once I, once I figured that out, I started another podcast. So in the course of my career, I have dropped six different podcasts, six, six different uh, titles. And at first I would berate myself and I said, why can't I just stick to one brand? I hear all these people saying that you have to have one podcast, one brand, just keep going. And I just kept evolving from my podcast topics. And I later looked at that and I, I said to myself, oh, see, I'm just like the way the mu a musical artist drops albums. I just drop podcasts. You know, like musical artists will drop albums based off of how they're evolving, what they're going through in their life. And then I just do that with podcasts. So I never got any sort of formal training for speaking. And it would blow my little Lisa's mind if my my younger self to, to think that I could speak like this today. I would never have imagined that. But I think one, it was just the act of even recording these podcast episodes, pressing uh, publish no idea who was listening, how many people would end up listening, but I just did it because I felt a calling to, to speak and I was curious. And I, I think that at the end of the day, there's a few key things that come is one is just the practice of speaking extemporaneously. It, I have a, a commandment in my book called a bad bitch um, asserts her voice. And in this chapter, I talk about how I overcame that fear of speaking and dropping my first podcast. And that was just recording myself on my phone and speaking about any topic for five minutes. So it could be, you know, I'm looking at this microphone and maybe I'd, I'd talk about microphones for five minutes and which one was the best. Or I would talk about who's just topics that matter to me. And I have a bunch of prompts in the book. But, but if I break it down to the core because I fundamentally don't think that most things in life are about tactics. I think that it's about your energy and your presence. It's that it was the, the inner work that I did around confidence, around who I am, around what I stand for, the innate belief that I have now that the words that I say matter, that I don't need to necessarily fill empty space with useless chatter and that I have the right to take space to think about what I need to say. And all of those things, it's like, it truly is a fundamental identity shift to believe that you have something of value to say. And I think when you focus on who you are being rather than just 
what you have to say or do, then you show up in a very different way. And that is the core of what makes someone a great speaker and a communicator. In your book, The Bad Bitch Business Bible, who can't say that enough, you you tell a great story about how you were talking with another, I think it was a gentleman that had a similar type of coaching practice to you. And he was, for whatever reason, sharing with you what his rates were. And you were having a little bit of a uh, epiphany around what that meant to you and your own rates. Would you kind of retell that story and then tease out what the lesson is for anyone that is suffering from a self-confidence issue, from an enoughness issue, from a pricing confidence issue? Tell the story, tease out the lessons. So when I first started my coaching business, I had the challenge that many of us do, which was how do I price my services? And initially I was pricing them at a certain rate. And then I did some market research and I called up my friend who was also a coach. He was an entrepreneur transitioned into coach and he listed his price and it was literally double what I was starting out from. And my jaw dropped when I heard his prices because it just, it never occurred to me that I was allowed to charge that much. And I made excuses like, oh, my clients can't pay that much. And, you know, I I don't want to charge that much. And he was just like, why not? Because if you're bringing value, then why wouldn't you charge that much? I have these types of clients and they will pay that much too. And so it was really more of a conversation around, so around pricing, but I think it has more deeply to do with worth and self-worth. And I have a lot of women who I work with who are always asking, you know, how much should I price this? Um, How much should my valuation be for my business? How much should I fundraise? And they get so stuck on those details of how much should I do it? um, Rather than focusing on why they believe they are not valuable enough to charge what they truly could be charging. And this challenge that women tend to have around pricing ourselves less. So we see this when over 66% of women don't never negotiate their first offer at a job. Um, And it's not because they don't think they're going to be hard workers. It's because they're just afraid to ask. They're afraid of the backlash. They're afraid um, that if they charge too much, that they, uh, they will seem a certain way. And this double standard that also happens for women is around their relationship to money and how society sees a woman's role in relationship to money. So you see men, um, we, we applaud male leaders for making a lot of money. And when they spend that money superfluously on fancy cars, fancy watches, we say, oh, great, that's just what he does. On bottle service at the club, that's just what he does. But when a woman says, I want to build a billion dollar empire, I want to make a ton of money. And someone will say, well, aren't you giving that to uh, a charity, a nonprofit? Do you have a philanthropic uh, aspect to that? And she immediately feels guilty. So they'll say, you know, why, why are you charging so much when there's so many people in the world that need help or are hungry? And men will never get that sort of commentary. And so there's this double standard of one, 
um, or the, the double bind that women have is both from the internal aspect of not feeling worthy enough. And so that's what I work with women on this coaching of unapologetic worth. And then the second aspect is how do you deal with the external world that tells you as a woman, you're not allowed to own the fact that you want to make money. Because imagine a woman saying, you know, I want to make a ton of money because I want to take myself on shopping sprees. I want to go to the salon and I want to look very beautiful. People will immediately be like, why is she so shallow? Uh, but of course that standard does not exist for men. When we see the way that they use their money, we just say, that's just the way men are. And so as a, as someone who's encouraging female leaders and training a new generation of women, this is really about you deserving this. You need to get to a place where you realize you deserve the types of money that you're earning. You deserve to charge the value of your services. If you are putting in hard work, if you are being intentional about the types of people that you're serving and you really are creating value and transformation for them, then of course you should be charging as much as it will take to make you be able to bring out your best work. Uh, be very clear. Maybe it's my feminine side. I want to go on a shopping spree and I want to go to the spa more, but all my money is going <laughs> to my kids' education and tennis lessons. But I was riveted listening to you. I'm so honored you're here. This has been an invigorating interview. You are an energy infuser. I am delighted to have read your book, The Bad Bitch Business Bible. 10 Commandments to Break Free of Good Girl Brainwashing and Take Charge of Your Body, Boundaries, and Bank Account. Lisa Carmen Wang, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Scott. It was an honor, and thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <laughs>